Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, channel pros. Welcome back to Channel Journeys. This is Rob Spee, your host and channel enthusiast. Thank you so much for listening today. It is November, almost Thanksgiving here in the United States. And it's that time of year when we are focused on both closing out a strong quarter and starting to make plans or well into planning for 2021. And if you're thinking about channel technology and partner management tools, be sure to take a look at Magentrix. Not only are they the sponsor of Channel Journeys, they are experts in creating web portals with full integration to your CRM system, whether that's Salesforce, Microsoft Dynamics, HubSpot, or many other systems. You know, I heard Jay McBain mention that there are over 100 components in a partner program. What I like about Magentrix is how quickly they help you stand up a feature-rich PRM for all the key elements, things like deal registration, the pricing and quoting for resellers, dynamic content delivery, what kind of content do you want to tee up to the partner during different stages of the sales cycle, incentive tracking for referral commissions and resale discounts, even training and certification and gamification and and many other things, all those important elements. So check them out at Magentrix.com or go to the Salesforce App Exchange too. And there they have a five-star review rating. I highly recommend you go and check them out. And I'll have a special offer to share with you at the end of today's show. Well, this is the 60th anniversary, 60th episode of Channel Journeys. And I want to do something different. I want to take a break from business and share with you the story of my last sailing adventure. Some listeners like Jamie Bain have been bugging me to share the details of what it was like out there and and not just the ocean experience sailing offshore but also what it was like doing that in the middle of the covid crisis. So today, I'm going to share my story of sailing through covid. Bill Buckley, William Buckley, he wrote a fun book called Airborne about his first sailing trip across the Atlantic and when he was planning the trip with his friends, he referred to it as the BO for the big one. And my first crossing is from south to north instead of west to east like Bill Buckley did and I was only sailing 1,500 miles instead of Bill Buckley's 4,400-mile crossing. So I'm going to call my trip the little big one. And the plan is to sail from St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands to Newport, Rhode Island, with a possible stop in Bermuda. That's always a nice place to, to make a stop when crossing north or south. But to make it even more interesting, we're attempting this trip in the middle of the global pandemic. This was back in May. So just getting to the sailboat docked in St. Thomas is a challenge. First, I have to fly to Fort Lauderdale on a pretty full flight, except the middle seats that were kept open by Southwest Airlines. And once there in Fort Lauderdale, I had to spend the night in a pretty empty hotel and catch uh, an almost empty flight that morning, next morning, on Spirit Air to St. Thomas. And I remember some passengers are wearing masks, but many of them aren't wearing them correctly. They're like on their heads or on their necks or whatever. So that was a lot of fun. Now, when we get to St. Thomas, there you you get off the airplane, you're, you're out in the hot sun, straight onto the tarmac, and there's a ground staff in full hazmat suits taking our temperature right there before we can even go into the airport terminal. So make it through all that and get out to the boat. So my ship for the voyage is called Aphrodite. She's a 68-foot swan built back in 1993 
a high-performance monohull built specially for blue water sailing. Just a fantastic boat, very solid. And the owner charters her out in the Caribbean in the winter and then out of Newport, Rhode Island in the summer. And every spring, there's a mass exodus of sailboats from the Caribbean to escape the hurricane season. And every fall, these boat owners sail back south to escape the northern winters. But this year, Kovic really wreaked havoc on, on boaters' plans, boat owners' plans. And it prevented many, many boats from departing the Caribbean due to port lockdowns, both lockdowns in the Caribbean and lockdowns up and down the, the U.S. coast. So hundreds of boats were stranded in the U.S. Virgins. That was about the only place that uh, U.S. boat owners could bring their boats. And they're waiting for the ports to, to open up before they could come back. So um, that was the situation that we were experiencing. And, and for me, after two days of travel, I finally get to the marina and I find my ship. And there I get to meet our captain, Maurizio, who greets me with a smile and a firm handshake. So not a fist bump or elbow pump. It, it was a real handshake, probably the first I'd had in, in a while. And Maurizio, he's been stuck on the boat in St. Martin for the past several months and had single-handed sailed single-handedly on his own from St. Martin to St. Thomas so he could pick us up, uh, the crew, since we weren't allowed to fly into St. Martin. And one of the crew had already arrived the day before. The other four trickled in later in the afternoon. Now it's Saturday, and the marina is full of ships, but the marina shops are locked up and deserted. Fortunately, the pool is still open, where we can swim to cool off and chat with fellow sailors and hear of their adventures getting kicked off the other Caribbean islands. Pretty amazing stories. There were a few restaurants open, and so our first meal on board is actually takeout Chinese. That was actually pretty good. The next day, our co-captain arrives, and I've really been looking forward to meeting her. You may have heard of her, Tanya Abbey. She is the author of Maiden Voyage. It's a story she wrote after sailing solo around the world on a 26-foot sailboat. She left New York at the age of 18 and, and came home two years later. She was, at the time, the youngest American woman, woman to circumnavigate solo. And if you haven't read her book, you really should. What's really amazing is that Tanya's dad gave her a choice. She wasn't on a great path. And so he tells her, look, you can go to college or sail around the world. And she's all keen on sailing around the world. But he says, no, you can't do it with friends. You have to do it alone. And I kind of think, you know, as a dad, that must have been the hardest thing a father can do. But he knew her life wasn't headed in the right direction. And she really needed a challenge to get her on a better path. And, and that's what she'll tell you today. That was, you know, the best thing, greatest thing and bravest thing that, that her dad did. Well, back on the ship, Tanya and Maurizio are, are checking out the weather forecast. They're making sure that nothing really nasty is going to hit us when we're out on the ocean for anywhere from, you know, eight days minimum to 14 days, a kind of worst case scenario. But we don't want to hit any major storms. And there actually is a tropical storm, Albert, that's spinning off the coast of North Carolina. But we think it'll be well out of our way by the time we get there. And we learned then that Bermuda is still closed, and the only way to visit the island is to quarantine on your boat for two weeks, and none of us have time for that. So we're going to have to skip Bermuda and just go straight to Newport. And what's going to happen when we arrive there really isn't totally certain yet either. If the harbor's closed, we could have to sidetrack to uh, Boston or New York, seeing if they're open or not. And uh, that's why we really don't know exactly how long it's going to take us to get there or, or where exactly we're going. But the plan is to go to Newport. And we think it'll take eight days under perfect, perfect conditions, perfect winds. Could be 10 or more days if the winds totally die out and we have to motor occasionally. Well, Monday morning, we're full of excitement. And the last thing we have to do is top off the water and fuel tanks. You do that, make sure we have enough to see us through. And then finally, we're motoring out of the harbor of St. 
Thomas, and we raise the mainsail, unfurl the jib, and and then my favorite part, turn off the engine, and everything's quiet except for the sound of the water and the wind, and that's that's the best time on a sailboat. And I've sailed around the the U.S. and British Virgin Islands many times. It's one of my favorite sailing grounds, probably the favorite. So it's it's really fun on this trip to be sailing past islands like St. John and Tortola. And the last island we sailed past was Joost van Dijk. And I'm just dreaming of times swimming to the Soggy Dollar Bar in White Bay for a painkiller. If you've ever, ever been there, it's really special. But we've got even more exciting things to do. And, and soon the islands disappear off the horizon behind us. And, and Maurizio, he, he gives us a hint of things to come with his amazing Italian cooking. That was a fantastic element of the trip. He was born in Italy and learned to cook from his mom, who taught him all sorts of family recipes. With six of us on board as crew, we can have a pretty relaxing watch schedule. We will each be on watch for three hours and off watch for six. That's your time to sleep, rest, do whatever. And the watches are staggered, so there's always a 90-minute overlap. That means when I come on deck, one crew member is relieved, but the other one stays with me for 90 minutes, and then another one comes back up. So it's really nice having that. It's a lot safer than having two brand new crew coming on deck at the same time, especially in the middle of the night and heavy weather. It's really nice to have someone who's, who's been there on the prior watch. And Tanya and Maurizio, our, our co-captains, they don't have any formal watches, but they are responsible for the ship 24 hours a day. And they have to trust us that we know what we're doing when we're out there sailing the boat and that we won't do anything that, that puts us or our ship in danger. Well, I, I don't get much sleep that first night because I'm too excited to go to bed. It's just so exciting being out there on the ocean, knowing what we're going to do. And I'm back up at f- about 4.20 a.m. For, fi- for my 4.30 a.m. watch. And two of my favorite times at sea are sunrise and sunset. And this morning, I'm treated to the rise of the crescent moon, followed by just a beautiful sunrise over that deep blue ocean. And there's nothing else in sight, just water. And the conditions are perfect. The winds are blowing around 20 knots. We're sailing around 8 to 9 knots, which is about 9 to 10 miles per hour. That's pretty fast for a monohull, and we're, we're already worried that the trip's going to go by too quickly if we keep up the speed. But, of course, be careful what you ask for. After my watch, I, I get out my fishing gear and get some hooks in the water. My mission is to catch some fish on this trip so we can enjoy sushi and a fish fry. On one of my sails years ago um, from Fort Myers to South Carolina, we caught fish almost every day just with a hand line and some lures. And that's, that's what I'm using on this trip, similar gear. Though I'm going to find out later in the trip that we're missing the most important piece of sailing gear. I'll fill you in on that one. I try to get some sleep in my cabin, but it's so dang hot down there. You know, this is May in the Caribbean. It's it's pretty hot still. Too hot to sleep during the day, and the sailing conditions are, are pretty exciting outside, and I can't wait to get back at the helm, so I spend a lot of time back up on deck. By then, the seas, they've picked up quite a bit, and it's probably from that tropical storm uh, north of us. It's sending down pretty big waves, and as we sail down into the troughs of these rollers, we see nothing but water above us, just a mountain of water, and then you chug back up. You climb back up to the peak of the wave, and you look around. You get a 360-degree view of the waves that are breaking all around us, and then you're back plunging back down, and it's just over and over riding up down to this big roller coaster. It's so much fun. If you like roller coasters, I guess. But uh, it's I love it. And let me tell you about our crew. One of the things I really enjoy about these sailing adventures that I do is getting to know the sailors I've never met before. And while we all come from very different backgrounds, we all love sailing and, and testing ourselves against the elements. And that's enough, I think, of a screening mechanism that we tend to all get along pretty well. In addition to our Italian captain Maurizio and co-captain Tanya, there are five other crew on board besides me. We have a Delta pilot, a Vietnam vet, 
with with crazy stories, um, a software business owner and two retired executives. So nice, diverse crew. And one of the crew, Marty, he shared my love for the stars. And he has this super cool stargazing app on his iPhone that we used every night when we were on watch together. And we could identify all the stars, the planets, the constellations in the sky using that app. So we watched Jupiter and Saturn rise up in the eastern sky. We saw them travel up past Sagittarius. We see Venus and Mars as they're settling in the west. Some evenings, I'd just lie on my back after sunset to watch the night sky come alive. That was so cool. Waking up the next day, it's Thursday now, and and now we're under power with no wind to fill the sails. We have full tanks of water and a water maker, but our captain wants us to practice water conservation to prepare us for when we sail on smaller, less well-equipped boats. So we wash our dishes with seawater. We learn how to take showers with just small cups of water. And I've got the two fishing lines out, but still no bites. And then the breeze starts to pick up after lunch, and we finally get enough wind to turn off the engines again. But we have to fall off, and that means we're, we're altering our course to our desired heading based on where the wind's hitting us. But now we're pointing directly towards Florida instead of Newport, Rhode Island, but at least we're sailing again. And then the wind continues to pick up, and the direction of the wind shifts enough that gets us back on our course of due north straight towards Newport. And by dinnertime, it's so windy, we can't even eat in the cockpit. We have to sit down in the main cabin where we're protected from the wind, otherwise everything gets blown away. Now, sailing, it's about the journey, not the destination. And the journey always involves something breaking on a sailboat. You can kind of count on it. So you have the challenge of something to fix while you're on your journey. And after my evening watch, I, I climbed into my bunk to get some sleep before having to get back up at 4 a.m. And the seas have really picked up by now. So I'm getting thrown around pretty good. And fortunately, I'm on the port side of the boat. We're on a starboard tack. The wind's coming from off the out of the east for us. The wind's blowing off the starboard side. So the boat's healing to the left, to the left side of the boat, the port side. And that's good because I'm I'm pushed against the the hull of the boat. When you're on the other side of the boat, in the other uh, bunk on the starboard side, that means you're rolling out of your bunk. So bunk choice is a good one. You got to think about where you're going, what kind of tack you're going to usually be on, and and make sure you get on the right side. Otherwise, you got to have find a way to to put up a a board or something to keep you from falling out of your bunk while you're sailing. So I, I was on the right side of the boat. Actually, it was the left side, but it was the correct side. Anyway. There's a lot of commotion going on, and, and I was too tired to get up and see what it was all about, but I, I found out soon enough. It turns out that uh, someone accidentally, I won't name names, but someone accidentally let the fuel tank run dry um, before switching tanks, and and that's a big no-no because the bottom of your diesel tanks, they can hold all kinds of sludge that gets into your line. Well, fortunately, all we had was air in the line, so we just had to bleed that out. Once that was bled out, um, the engine fired back to life, and, and that's really important on a sailboat because it, it charges the batteries, which run all of our navigational equipment, and it also runs all our heads or toilets because they're all automatic. You can't pump them manually on this boat, so that could have gotten really messy. But fortunately, we didn't have that. We got the engines running again. Now, that night's sail was a wild ride. The waves are huge. It's dark out. You you really have to sail more by feel and keep one eye on the compass. And we have an autopilot that will do all the steering for you, but I really prefer to take the helm when I'm at it uh, on watch for that 90 minutes that I'm in charge. And I really love the challenge of, of keeping a course, and it helps keep things exciting, especially at night and big waves. Well, just a few hours of sleep after my watch, I, I wake up to a whole new world. The wind has died down from 20 knots to about 12 knots, which is really barely enough to keep sailing on a boat of that size. But now it's really like a, a gentle cruise, not the wild roller coaster ride that we were on. 
And ocean sailing, it's a pretty physical sport. Just standing up and getting around takes a lot of energy and then combine that with little sleep and you can get pretty exhausted. Maurizio's dinners really helped keep up our energy and our spirits. And he made us that night butternut squash risotto with bacon. Oh, it was, it was to die for. And every night we break out chocolate bars that Tanya brought us from Trader Joe's. Um, just became a ritual of ours. That was a lot of fun on the boat and just little things that, that bring you together. By Friday, we've been sailing for four days, and we've covered hundreds and hundreds of miles and haven't seen a single other boat out on the ocean. So we're almost jumping for joy when we spot another sailboat on the horizon, though they don't respond when we try to hail them on the radio. We thought we could have a little chat. The other big excitement that day is when we see a school of giant tuna just leaping out of the water like dolphins, and I wish I could get one on my fishing line, but it's still a really cool sight to see. There are some dark clouds brewing on the horizon, though, so it's time to take down the mainsail. We lower the bimini cover that protects us from the sun in the cockpit, just in case uh, of thunderstorms and squalls that can bring really strong winds super quickly, and you don't want to be caught unaware or unprepared at night. The sunset that night is really almost indescribable, and we're sailing along without any noise other than the wind and the waves. As the red, orange, pink colors, they start to fade, and then the stars and the planets all start to come alive. And Maurizio, he taught us a fun sailor's navigational trick that you can do without a sextant. You can find the Big Dipper, and you draw a line, you know, on the the two stars at the end. Those will take you to the North Star Polaris, which is the handle of the Little Dipper. And then stretch your arm out in front of you and make a fist. And then you want to count how many fists you can fit between Polaris, the North Star, and the horizon that you see. And... Every fist will count for 10 degrees of latitude and every finger for two degrees. So when I tried, I counted three fists and two fingers. So that that tells me we're at about 34 degrees latitude north. Actually, we were at 32, but it was I was pretty close. Not too bad. So that was a pretty cool way, you know, just a easy way without a sextant to see where are you latitude wise. And we're actually at 32 degrees. Um, St. Thomas is at 18 degrees north and Newport is at 41 degrees north latitude. So that means we're, we're more than halfway now. And Hilton Head is due west of us, only about 600 miles away. Well, one of the things I was really hoping to see on this trip and what you read about is and see pictures of us having dolphins swimming off your bow. Sunday morning, I wake up, and it's skies are gray, and we've got our first rainstorm. It's a little somber. But sure enough, just to brighten our day, a pod of dolphins show up out of nowhere. It's so cool that, to see them. They're jumping and rolling and diving and, and just playing and having fun in the waves coming off of our bow. And we run up to the bow of the ship. We're taking pictures and videos and, and just having a great time watching them. Then they leave for a few hours. They're gone. But then we look off out to the to the west, and there's even a bigger pod swimming towards us. And it's like the, the few dolphin went home and told all their friends about us, and they, they brought them all back for another show. So the second dolphin show, it's even better than the first one. And, and there were like five or ten dolphins swimming in unison on either side of the boat. And it's just so much fun. I can watch those guys all day long. Well, let's talk about the Gulf Stream. Crossing the Gulf Stream is unavoidable when you sail between the U.S. and the Caribbean. And it can be pretty scary, especially if you have a strong north wind blowing against the current that's coming up from the south. And that's what happened on my first crossing from Florida to the Bahamas. That was a trip when I caught so much fish, but we had a really strong 30-knot wind coming out of the north that's hitting all that current that's coming up from the south. And that makes for a really wild ride. And that was about the closest I've ever come to getting seasick on a sailboat. So we've been plotting 
where we would be best off making that crossing. And even before we left St. Thomas, we were taking a look at that. And then we kept adjusting our plans as we went along. We were getting updates on the weather forecast. And we were really preparing for the worst on that crossing. So it was almost disappointing that when we crossed, it was under motor power in dead calm flat seas. And the only way we really knew that we had gone into and gotten across that Gulf Stream is you look at the water temperature. There's a temperature gauge under the boat. And we saw that the temperature went up a few degrees. It went from 28 degrees Celsius to 30 degrees Celsius in the stream. That's about 86 degrees Fahrenheit. But as we moved out of the Gulf Stream, north of it, the the water temperature plunged to 15 degrees Celsius or about 59 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's, that's a huge drop. And... Then the big excitement was all the cargo ships that we started seeing were getting, you know, closer to civilization. One thing that was weird, there was an oil tanker that was just out there drifting in the middle of the ocean. And and we think due to COVID and the collapse of oil prices at the time, they were probably just sitting out there waiting for a buyer for their oil. Pretty wild. We just happened to be sailing on Tanya Abbey's 36th anniversary of her maiden voyage on her sailboat, which was named Varuna, 36 years ago to the day that she departed New York for Bermuda without a GPS. And as she said, just a crappy little plastic sextant for navigation. Just hard to imagine 18-year-old girl out there doing that. By now, we're in what we call the third stage of our voyage. The first stage is excitement and uncertainty about what lies ahead. Then comes the middle stage where you really have confidence, kind of serenity and appreciation for the ocean and, and all that God's created around you. And then, then comes the third stage, and that's the excitement of our upcoming arrival into Newport and getting home, which is also mixed with some sadness that our adventure will soon be over. Our last full day on the boat does hold a few more surprises for us, though. Coming up on deck, I find my crewmates taking a picture of something that I've never seen before, and Tanya calls it a fog bow and says it's super rare. It's like a rainbow, but made out of the fog. And I'm I'm watching the fog bow, taking pictures, and then letting out my fishing lure to see if I can catch something on my last day. And then something really big hits and, and rips that line right out of my hands. And when I pull it back in, the, the lure is just completely gone. Now we're approaching or about to approach the Continental Shelf and the Block Island Canyon that is famous for tuna fishing. So I rigged up another plastic squid lure. I get get on my gloves and I start letting out the line by hand again. And sure enough, I get another massive hit. And this time I'm able to hold on and I, I let the line run a little bit and then I start reeling it back in hand over hand. And Captain Maurizio, he runs over to help me out. He's rolling up the line as I reel it in, and I get this fish all the way up next to the boat, and by now we can see it's it's a tuna. She's a beauty. Bluefin tuna, probably three to four feet long, and now th- this is where I said we're missing one really important piece of equipment when, when sailing on a sailboat of this size, and particularly hand fishing like this. We did not have a gaffing hook to get the beast onto the boat, so Mauricio's yelling at me to just flip it up over the handrail of the boat, and the problem is that the handrail is about 10 feet off the water, and I've got probably a 100-pound fish on a number eight hook and, and just this hand line. So how in the heck do I get them back on the boat? So I try first just to get them up on the slanted transom, and, and that worked pretty well. I, I got him up there, but then he wiggles his way over to the exhaust pipe and, man, snap so quickly the line, which is super taut, is cut on that exhaust pipe, and there goes our sushi. And I, I really wanted to try again, but by now it's getting dark. The fog is getting thick, and there's, there's no time to be messing with the fishing line. Our last 24 hours are are really in the strangest fog bank I've ever experienced. We had that fog bow that morning, and on the night watch, you can really barely see your hand in front of your face. But when I look up, the stars are shining super bright, and the Big Dipper's pointing the way to the North Star. I can see Scorpius and Sagittarius. They're almost hidden by the, the Milky Way that's shining so bright. So we've got this fog over the water, but the skies are clear. 
coming on watch around 1.30 a.m., I have to stand on the bow as we're sailing along. Pretty, pretty gentle clip, but I've got to be on the bow with my air horn that I'm blowing every five minutes. And that's just in case there are any boats nearby. We've got to keep sounding the horn um, so that others can hear us. Our, our biggest fear is colliding with some other boat. There are a lot of fishing boats out there that, that you can't see, but you can, you can almost smell them with all the fish. And I brought a pot of tea with me up on the bow to fight off the cold air. And now we've gone from shorts and t-shirts to, to long johns and, and wool caps. The chatter on the VHF radio as we close in on Newport that night, it's really crazy. First, we hear the Coast Guard say that two boats have collided near Dorchester. Possible people in the water, any boats in the area, please assist. Next, we hear that a boat is on fire off Bristol Point, please assist. Then, a sailboat has gone aground on the beach, but we hear she's able to get free and is, being, is, is motoring to the marina to ch- get checked out. Lots of craziness happening that night. Fortunately, everything was good with us, though, and we're calm. So approaching Newport Harbor that next day, the fog's lifted, the sun is out, and I have the good fortune of being on watch and at the helm for the final 90 minutes of our journey. And I have to weave my way in and out, dodging lobster pots and sailboats that are coming out of Newport Harbor. Then we drop the mainsail, and and Maurizio points out the mooring ball that I need to steer towards. And sail far enough past the mooring so you can turn straight into the wind, he reminds me. And that way, we can control our speed. And the next thing you know, we're tied up at the mooring, the sails are put away, the lines are all tidy. Well, what now? We've just finished a nine-day journey, 1,500 miles across the ocean. Well, the only thing to do, pop the champagne, of course. Tanya found a bottle, and we have leftover orange juice, so we toast with mimosas break out all the food that's left over. We have ourselves a grand picnic. And I remember I still have the bottle of rum that I bought in St. Thomas. I bought it so that we'd have something to knock out the fish that I planned to catch. That's that's cleaner than knocking them out on the head with a club. So out comes the rum and we polish it off with the remaining cans of Coke and ginger ale. And now we're ready to head to town. Got to check in and see what life looks like in the COVID apocalypse because we've been away for a while. We're not sure what we're going to find. Walking into Jamestown across the harbor from Newport, we find the town almost deserted, and it's almost surreal to see a few people, some with masks on, others without, but they're all giving a strangers a really wide berth, crossing the street and don't want to be on the same sidewalk with us, strangers coming off a boat. So that was that was a little bit odd. Luckily, we did find one shop still open selling lobster rolls, so we had a, a nice snack there. Well, soon I'm at the airport. It's also pretty deserted. I want to catch my flight home, but even that requires a one-night layover in Baltimore because all the direct flights had been canceled. So I got to fly into Baltimore with one of the crewmates. Um, We spend the night there, and then the next morning I can catch my flight home back to Atlanta. It was really an amazing adventure, my little big one. I can't wait to repeat it. Perhaps next time I'll go for the big one and do the real full crossing uh, from here to uh, Europe. That would be awesome. But as adventurous as that sounds, it's nothing compared to what I watched the next night after I got home from this sailing trip. It was the first liftoff from U.S. soil since 2011, with those two astronauts, Bob and Doug, using the SpaceX Falcon rocket to launch them into outer space to join up with the International Space Station. Now, that's a channel journey. All right, guys, that is my story of sailing through COVID. I hope you enjoyed it. I will post some pictures from the trip on my website. That'll be at channeljourneys.com backslash CJ60, CJ60. While you're there, be sure to subscribe and you'll you'll be able to catch all our future episodes. We'll be getting back into a, a channel topic next week, I promise you. And uh, also, oh, I promised you a special offer on Magentrix. Sure. So 
check out Magentrix at Magentrix.com. And also on my on my website, you'll see a link to this, but you have a discount code called SPEEPOD20. SPEEPOD20. Use that when you sign up and you'll get two free months on an annual contract by using that code SPEEPOD20. Sorry, SPEEPOD20. Awesome. Okay. Next episode, I'll be speaking with Jason Cutter about selling with authentic persuasion. And in the channel, you've got to be authentic. So you don't want to miss that one. I'll see you next time. Until then, have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends. And be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.